0: really
1: <laughs> he said, how do you think they did that 300 years ago <laughs> it was
0: simple man it was real simple well yeah, it's so, hard
1: yeah, it's I, hard to look at that stuff with the uh, without today's context
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it is it, it really is and i think uh, unfortunately that's kind of a stumbling block for a lot of people they look at the things I do as a gun maker, or other people do, and they think, there's no way I can do that. That mm. takes all kinds of machinery and skill to run those machines and all this technology, and no, it doesn't. It literally takes a file and a sharp piece of metal with a wooden handle on it, we call a chisel. That's yeah. about all it <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, that's an exaggeration. But, right, right. Yeah. Know, it, it is, you know, the basic tools to build a muggler.
1: Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Ben Query, a muzzleloading builder, kind of specializing in Southern Mountain Rifles, about his history in muzzleloading, how he got started, what he loves about the Southern Mountain Rifle, and a little bit of what keeps him going and why he's so willing to share what he's learned with others. Ben, to start off here, how did you get your start in muzzleloading?
0: I think like a lot of people, I was at the tail end of that. I'm the, the, the very first year of Generation X. I'm I'm not a boomer, although they call everybody over 35 a boomer now. <laughs> Generation <laughs> X. Boomers are old enough to be my parents, but my dad was much older when I was born. My oldest brother is 18 years older than me.
1: Oh my, okay. And he
0: had he actually had to enlist in the Navy or be drafted into the Vietnam War uh, when I was, gosh, about four or five. Really. Uh, yeah, and maybe younger than, yeah, might have been younger than that. Between two and four, I'd say. My brother joined the Navy, and literally, like, the week he left, we got the draft notice from the Army that <laughs> <laughs> he was going to be cannon fodder. So um, he left the farm. We had a farm, and he and Dad were working the farm, and after he left, that didn't work out. And we ended up selling it and uh, moving to just a house way out in the woods, pretty out near Lake Monroe. And he traveled all over the world for twelve years. Well, when he came back, of course I'd already like a lot of the kids of my generation, the the old generation Xers and the Boomers, we started out on Davy Crockett on the Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday night at eight PM. Uh-huh. Every Sunday there might be cartoons, there might be a science show from Disney, you know, but once in a while there was Davy Crockett, you know, and we all loved that. So jump back to um a, a little older than that, or about that age, my brother comes back from the navy after twelve years, and he was a real hobby guy. And the reason being, he could read about hobbies like model railroading or modelers or whatever while he was on the ship, and it kept his mind occupied. Ah, he was in the the Southeast Asia area, but on a ship, not on the not in the jungle. Yeah, and so he'd read about these things, and when he came back to Blemington and I guess, 79, um, he gave me all his hobby stuff, and and there was a slot car track, right, Uh and there was a Heath kit, RC car, he had built Heath kits, he was stationed on Guam for six years, this little tiny island in the South Pacific, so he had all his hobby stuff, but the thing that dad and I loved the most, Now the cars were fun, you know, the whatever that's cool but the thing we love the most because we were kind of a, a gun family growing up he had a bunch of muzzleloader books <sighs> there was a couple of black powder gun digests from 75 76 77 somewhere in there you know
2: uh-huh. and yeah.
0: the, the boomers are now in their 20s you know and 30s and they're they're just eating this up and there's a lot of them so it's very popular you know there's a bigger chunk of the population, and also the population was larger back then, you know, with all the the post-World War II baby boomers, and so I got these magazines, and I got these books, and uh, I already had an interest from like 76, I was in the fifth or sixth grade, and it was the bicentennial, and that was a big deal for all us kids of that age, you know, America's 200 years old and we're all, you know, quite patriotic and we're we're in parades and stuff like that. And that was the first time I actually dressed in period clothing in late, uh, 18th century, uh, stocking and the shoes didn't work. We were in parade. So they said, we're comfortable. I had the shirt, you know, and the hat and all that. And, uh, it added to that over the years and got better quality stuff, you know, but, uh, and when I was 11, not long after that, I was, uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting out of phase. I built my first loader when I was 11. Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And my brother came back from the Navy a, a year or two later and gives me all these loader magazines and books. Okay. So I had built a kit real similar to what you're building on the web. That's why I was enjoying that. I bought it for, uh, $19.95, I think, at Kmart, and the Kmart Sporting Goods. Oh, and my uh, gosh. Cobbed my way through that. Dad, you know, he offered help here and there, but it was a pretty simple kit. Yeah. And I got it working, you know, and this was real cool, and we got it out and shot it. And Dad was from up in the mountains of Virginia. They came up here in the 1930s to work on the Interurban Railroad from uh, Terre Haute, to Indianapolis, back okay. in the 30s. But they had—they were— destitute poor mountain folk in Virginia right. and guns were a big part of survival by supplying food you know wild game was a big part of the the diet in their family so when dad's brothers came down and his brother-in-laws we would all shoot guns we had a range out behind the house a little short 25 yard range but we would shoot and so we bring this pistol out and everybody's just mesmerized by this percussion pistol you know and then within a year of that my brother comes back from the navy and he's like here you want this stuff and you know there's all this hobby stuff from him being on ship and reading about it and not being able to actually do it but he was an avid reader so he read a lot about muzzlers and and gives me uh a couple three uh black pirate gun digest the old ones from the 70s you know that are all black and white uh, crinkly pages, but uh, that really got me hooked. After that, I was just foaming at the mouth over Muslow <laughs> Between you know, initially seeing Davy Crockett and occasionally Daniel Boone, and uh, there was there were books back then. I wish I could find them, but there were a lot of books that came out during the bicentennial and a couple years after it. Uh, one of them was homestyle living in rural America during the Revolutionary War, I believe. Okay. And it showed all kinds of mechanical things that were used in that time period and forges and tools and plows and implements and things like that. It was really neat. And I found that just fascinating, you know. And then my brother comes along, and here's how they made guns back then. <laughs> oh, my God, I was hooked. I mean, they actually could do that, you know. And so I was just... Uh, rabid with it and i think my dad either took pity on me or <laughs> wanted me to shut up <laughs> he would um we were mild gun collectors cheap low-end gun collectors you know which yeah. oh i know i know afford, right where you're at
1: man that's that's where i'm know, sitting <laughs> and,
0: you know the ones we could afford and if they were fun to shoot yeah we we'd add that one you know so he would occasionally every couple weeks or so when he had a little money in his pocket, he'd stop by the gun shop on the way home. Sometimes surprised me. Like, I got you a new squirrel rifle, you know, for doing this. Cutting wood all week, you know, here's a little bonus for you. Or yeah. like that. You know, dad would do things like that. And uh, he comes home and he says, I got something for you. He comes walking in the back door and I'm like, is that a stick of wood? And he <laughs> hands it to me. And it was... The most foul excuse for a muzzleloader kit that had been assembled I had ever seen. <laughs> uh,
1: what was it? Do you remember?
0: Um, it was. You remember the old CVA kits?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. The
0: really old ones where the stock was made in two pieces.
1: Uh huh. Okay. So yeah. It would yeah.
0: Fit in the box. Yes. Yeah. So they could box. ship
1: it, and it wouldn't so break. They
0: could ship it. It yep, was like that, but not that good of quality.
1: Oh, my. Okay.
0: <laughs> and CBA and was not known for quality, but you have to keep in mind, they're in a world with Thompson Center and yeah. other you know, really high-end makers. So this was not nearly the quality of a CBA gun, and it was made into pieces like that. And someone had assembled it and gone hunting, apparently in the rain. <laughs> And hadn't finished the stock or nothing. They just put it together out of the box that morning with her. And uh, apparently fired it once, didn't clean it, and uh, went to sell it at the gun shop at the end of the season. And I guess to make it look better, they took like some furniture stain and just wiped the sides, I think, with a rag. And it didn't get down in the ramrod groove. You know, I I was really embarrassed one time when one of the first guns I made, somebody pointed out that they could see the lighter color wood under the patch box. Like, I was mortified. Oh. This one, they, you could see the ramrod groove was not stone. <laughs> that's why I thought it was a stick. You right, know, right. Variegated in color. But, uh, he says, here you go. And I was, and granted, today, you would probably set this aside, like, maybe I'll salad some screws off that piece of junk someday i was ecstatic <laughs> i saw a cadillac covered in mud i just i thought this was the greatest thing ever and immediately disassembled it took it apart and i think we may have burned the stock it was warped so bad <laughs> that it was literally it pulled away from the wood um Laterally, about an inch <laughs> when you when popped that front piece
1: off. Oh my god And it was held
0: on with screws, just screwed into the barrel. It's very thick, heavy barrel. Right. It was a forty-five caliber. It may have been a, a tight forty-five, I guess. But uh, the wood was just ruined, and so we literally cast all that aside
1: and started over.
0: Cast cast the screws aside. We saved the patch box, and. Saved the trigger guard. Just and uh that was about it. We made everything else. The breech block stayed or the breech plug stayed in it. But we made everything else because it was just there it was of such low quality and it had been it had suffered through the environment so bad, yeah, that it just wasn't worth the effort. Oh, we saved the butt plate. We we didn't get a toe plate or anything like that, but we did save the butt plate. And it had a big uh, casting flaw in it, and Dad brazed that up. My dad was a, a welder during World War II, Okay, an aircraft welder and a tool and die maker. He could weld virtually anything, and he welded up with a torch and brazing rods, not technically well. well, you're melting one metal into the same base alloy, so I guess technically that is welding, but with a brass rod on a brass butt plate and welded it up and you could see a spot in it still because it's almost impossible to get the same alloys to match and right. they do look a little differently and you could see a spot where he had welded that up but that was all we saved everything else uh, we made he made the triggers at work he was a tool and die maker at ge the largest refrigerator plant in the world was here in blemington and he was a master tool and die maker there And they kind of operated under the theory that if nothing was broken down, you guys can do whatever you want back there in the tool room. But if something is, all of you get the line back up. Right. You'd be Maytag repairman back there, and we'd prefer that. If nothing was (laughs) broken, you guys were not busy. So they would work on things. Everybody had a little project, and this guy became Dad's project. And he uh, made the triggers for it. We completely remade the lock. We did save the plate and the hammer, but I think everything else we had to make for it, because it was, I don't, I think it was casting, but it was all really lousy quality, you know. So we made it all, and that was my first attempt at building a a long gun, a muzzle-loading long gun. Wow. Yeah. Right into the fire. Yeah, well, we thought that's how you did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We. There was a guy down the road, two houses down. Uh, and I'll tell you where I'm from, our neighbor didn't have indoor plumbing. Okay, yeah. She had an outhouse, and she had a cistern out behind the kitchen. And uh, the neighbors on the other side didn't even have that. And a couple houses down the road, they didn't even have electricity. So this was a very poor neighborhood. We didn't make any money when we sold that farm. We lost a lot of money. <laughs> and we were poor anyway, so we thought that's the way it was. You right, know? yeah. We didn't know any better.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, we didn't feel bad about it. But uh, a couple houses down the road, our neighbor's son, uh, Bob Deckard, had built a CVA Hawkins so he could go deer hunting. This is back in the 70s when – uh, the deer really first started coming back, and they, yeah. uh, they've been gone for a long time. And they really turned on in the '70s. And I think you could hunt with a shotgun. And at the time, there wasn't really a market. So, like eight seventies, you couldn't find a slug barrel for an eight seventy pump shotgun in the '70s the way you can now. You know, so a lot of guys were hunting with single shots and not doing very well accurately. And even you know, with that slug barrel on an eight seventy, I don't think you're going to be as accurate as you are with a rifle.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Gun, you know. And these, uh, Bob Decker was quite the sportsman. He hunted a lot. He went up to Canada fishing, and he'd gone to other states deer hunting. And uh, he wanted an accurate gun. He didn't want to hunt deer with a you know a musket, basically. Uh, So he built a CVA kit. And I was good friends with the son, and we rode the bus together. And, of course, I hear the play-by-play, as play, he's building. You know? And it was a pretty easy kit. I mean, spent about a week on it. Of course, he uh, worked at his firehouse. He was an ambulance driver. So okay. he worked 24 hours on and 48 off. So while he was at the firehouse, he was building this kit. You know? <laughs> yeah, obviously, I have nothing to do. I had a little vice out in the workshop somewhere. Um, so I get to see him shoot it. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. So when we go to build our own, you know, I knew how awesome it was. And I thought, well, you have to build it. And we don't have anywhere to buy this stuff. You know, we didn't, we knew nothing. And uh, so we made our own. We thought that's how you did it, you know, um, that's a pretty ignorant way to look at it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't, it, you don't know helped. what you don't know.
0: Yeah. You know, and you try to learn. And uh, Dad, found some guys at work that were into muzzleloaders and, you know, some of them had bought Thompson center kits and some had CVA kits and he talked to him about this and the other. And, you know, they brought in stuff and showed to him and he would make, like he made the triggers, you know, a guy had, uh, explained to him how it was supposed to work, you know? So he went out and machine shop made his own. And we put that thing together. And in the process, we cleaned the barrel up because it was rusty. Um, and we did the simplest thing. I I guess it's worked. I wouldn't do it now. But we put uh, steel wool on a Jag and worked it up and down until we got the whole barrel smooth. We, it's not real good for the rifling, but it does get the rough areas off
2: where yeah. you can shoot
0: it. Um, and we <laughs> thought, well, whatever. It's going to be more accurate than a shotgun this big enough to deer with. You know? uh, so we went out and got some black powder there was a, a little gun shop three or four miles down the road a guy had in his garage and he sold black powder and we got uh, a can of black powder off of him and some caps and we went out to our little range and uh, dad had me shoot it the first time and he had made the back sights for it which <laughs> I have that gun now and I kinda of laugh when I look at it. like this is a tool and die maker that's never seen a muzzle loader. This guy makes a muzzle it, it had a brass base dovetailed uh-huh. in. That kind of L shaped, and on that vertical leg, there's a tapped hole, yep, and a steel plate with a V in it, and an Allen screw, yep, <laughs> <And> an oversized <laughs> hole, so you can float it around <laughs> and then tighten that screw up with an Allen wrench. You know, it,
1: I, love wrench. I love that, I love that so much.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it worked, and it worked very well, exactly. We it adjust- worked. We adjusted that thing around, and we had taken some concrete blocks and uh an old i think it was a, a narrow door or something off of uh like a laundry closet or a, a towel closet it was about 16 inches wide and we'd taken some concrete blocks and stacked them up and made bench rest okay and you sit there in a lawn chair and dial one in you know even at 25 yards you, you want to do that i think you know when you first get a gun you had a a decent range, not a real long range, like 25 yards on a, a bench, if you can, to hold it steady, and figure out where that gun is mechanically going. Skill is one thing. When you first get that gun, you need to figure out mechanically what it's going to do, you know, and how ballistically it's going it, to cause that ball to behave. Right. So we dialed, did that, and I, I shoot. And uh, dad would pull out his little Allen wrench and adjust that, you know. And we got and we spent the whole dang day. We'd shot about half that can of powder by the time we got done. Dad realized he's like, "Do you know how much of this we've shot?" And my <laughs> shoulder was sore, and I didn't care. And we had that towards the end. He was setting bottle caps down there. Wow. Beer bottle caps um, at twenty-five yards, and I could usually hit them. Not every time. If I missed, it was close, but I was getting to where I could hit him, off bench rest with that thing. And we looked at each other, and we were we just couldn't stop grinning, you know? So we went in the house, and we cleaned it all up. We'd read through those magazines and books, you know, the old Black Powder Digest, yeah. how to clean a muzzler, you know? And uh, I started shooting that thing, there was no more building going on for a, a, quite a while there This was in the early spring and all that summer I shot that thing. and people would hear it and see the smoke you know because it's like said it's a rural poor neighborhood you know there's no car noise or anything you know the fathers typically went to work and the mothers did laundry in that neighborhood and the kids when they weren't in school would, you know, the parents would throw us all outside. There were no TVs or vi- – well, there TVs, but no video games or anything like that, no computers at all. So the kids would hear, and some see that powder smoke, and they would gather around. Well, Ben's shooting that thing. And, and, and inevitably, <laughs> it would come up, well, I can shoot better with my twenty-two.
1: Oh, uh, okay. Like,
0: all right, go get it. <laughs> and then the, the little steven single shots would come out that's yep. what kids had back then or yep. some semblance thereof a, a bolt action with a, a draw pin firing pin you know something like that's that. that's what everybody simple. had i mean they're everywhere yeah yeah it's a simple cheap you know at the time it, i think you could get them at, at warren's guns for 65 dollars you know something like that there was i think dad gave him, like Seven bucks. <laughs> <Whatever> <laughs> it, it was like ready to be used as a fence post. Right. We saved it. But uh, So we'd have impromptu shooting matches. Or we'd go uh, hunting some critter. At the time, there were farmers that would let us uh, go out in their fields and shoot if they had groundhogs. Okay. Because groundhogs would do a lot of damage. To the subsoil. My father actually rolled over a tricycle tractor. He drove over a groundhog then.
2: Really? Without realizing
0: it. And it collapsed. And, you know, tricycle tractors, they're barely, they're only standing on three legs anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's he easy rolled to it over, and, Yeah, and ever since then, he kind of had a vendetta on ground um, groundhogs. <laughs> and so, you know, if I wanted to go shoot them, he had my blessing. So, you know, we would all gather up and we would an Evelyn. We shot a lot more tank cans than we did groundhogs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Shot. We, what we had was access to a shooting field by by doing that. Yeah. You know? So we would shoot a lot, and I would typically out-shoot the other kids with that muzzleloader. And they'd go away scratching their heads and couldn't <laughs> figure it out, you know. And I became the old uh, muzzleloading hillbilly guy. We were all hillbillies. They called us Ridge Runners, all of People ask why I talk like this. Well, my dad was from Virginia, and I grew up in a neighborhood where a lot of people were from that part of the world because it was very poor living. We couldn't afford to live there. So we kind of made a community of, of Appalachian uh, refugees
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: came up here from the Depression era, era looking for work. Yeah, yeah. But I became the, the muzzleloading hillbilly of that group. And I believe the reason I outshot those other kids, I know a muzzleloader can be accurate, but the big reason, I practiced a lot. Yep. I shot a lot. And I shot that gun a lot. You know, And uh, this goes to show a, a muzzleloader can be as accurate as any breech-loading firearm, if properly loaded and consistently loaded. And I got real good at that through practice. So these kids that said, well, I can out-shoot you, I got a modern gun, that shot at a squirrel last year I haven't got a chance to get <laughs> somebody that's shooting every day, you know, or almost yeah. every day, yeah, whatever they're shooting, you know. So, but I practiced a lot and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I just, I was hooked on Mons loaders after that, you know. I I started looking into pouches because you have to have a way to load this thing, you know. And um, dad bought me a powder horn and we got a pouch and I got all the associated equipment, and uh, that was real cool. And then when that, uh, following winter came along, I was looking for more kits to build. And uh, I built another pistol and that year for Christmas, I got a big box under the tree and Dad had gotten me a Thompson Center Hawking.
1: Wow. Tool.
0: And he got himself one too. and we had a little a workshop set up in my bedroom. We had a, a workbench and some tools and he and I built those two Hawkins together. And that taught me a lot seeing him do something, and then I could go over and do the same thing on mine. was well, kind of uh, like the, okay. the, the, the teaching environment that, that Jim Kibler and others are putting on, like at the education building at the NMLRA headquarters. Yeah. Where you can see the instructor or the teacher do X, Y, and you can go over to your work piece and do X, Y. The same way, yeah. And if you do Z instead of Y, the, the instructor's right there to correct you, you know.
1: And, and do something uh, about it, yeah.
0: Yeah, if you make a mistake or you get stumped, well, there's your instructor right there. And uh, it took us a long time. It took all winter. It was, uh I think it was colder back then. It was like this all winter long. It was uh, really cold, so we stayed holed up and we worked on those muzzle And you know, I. <laughs> Uh, I had already done a lot you know I had already on that original broken down piece of junk he had taught me the right way to use the file you know you always push it you never pull it and you guide it with your finger and using a file is a two-handed job you guide it with one hand and push it with the other you know and he showed me how to polish and learn the the meaning of different grits of sandpaper right you know and what different types of sandpaper are because you know, there's aluminum oxide abrasive and there's other types of abrasives that work better on metal. And you know, I've, I learned a lot of things doing that, and that really sparked an interest that uh kind of got carried away, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
2: you
1: might need help, Ben. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I no, no. I have saw. It. I honestly I have, and they kind of threw up their hands and said, "You know what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> we can't help you." <laughs>
0: but,
1: uh,
0: uh. Uh, I went to Vincennes University in okay. Southern Indiana and got a, a two year degree and associate's degree in uh, tool and die making technology. And by the time I was eight or nine years old, Dad and three of his brothers were tool and die makers. I wanted to be a tool and die maker because if you ask a good one, he'll say, "Well, a tool and die maker can build anything from a pocket watch to a locomotive, and make <laughs> you money and make you money in the process." And I was like, "And I'd seen stuff Dad made, you know, and I thought that was really cool. I'd seen stuff his brothers had made, yeah, and so I." Uh, Right out of high school, I went to work in a machine shop and that was miserable. I worked there about 18 months and decided I'd never darken the door of a machine shop. Again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> about <laughs> what year went, was that?
0: Uh, that would have been 85.
1: 85, okay.
0: And, yeah. So um, then the next year, you know, I worked, I worked at a sawmill, driving the front end loader and using a chain saw, and worked construction and Work painting signs and finally realized I'm not going to get anywhere if I don't get an education. So I went to Vincent's for two years. And this time I thought, well, I'm going to do it. This is my apprenticeship. I can be like dad and his brothers. I can finally become a tool and die maker. Yeah. And I, and I did. And uh, in 88, I went to work for a company in uh, Seymour, Indiana, Ice and Seiki USA that is a supplier to the Georgetown, Kentucky Toyota plant, where they make, I believe, Corollas for Camry's one, maybe both. But uh, they supplied all the body molding, where the glass meets the metal. And they supplied the brake rotors and master cylinder, and like seat frames and door frames and several other components were made at this car factory I worked at, and then sent on a semi several times a day to Georgetown, Kentucky. Well, in that group of people I worked with in the tool room, uh, I was a tool die maker there. I was the 76th employee. They hired at that plant that had just built it. And when I left, there were 1400 people working there and had tripled in size and it became a big car plant, you know? But, uh, when I worked there, it was very small and kind of a tight knit group for the first few months. I was there about three years, I guess. And, uh, there were several guys in the tour room that were into the muzzleloaders too.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, uh, we started hanging around and going to friendship together and started camping together at friendship, which is a, a whole story unto itself. Uh, but friendship, Indiana came to be the, the center of my world in a lot of ways. We had gone there once when I was a kid, uh, In September, before dad died, in September of 81, and then dad died in February of 82. So I didn't get to go back until uh, I was going to Vincennes about five years later. I got to go to to Friendship and had looked around and thought, this is the the greatest show on earth. Uh, That was back when they had the National Rendezvous. Okay. Was during that week. Yeah. At friendship. So That's there were a of lot of TPs.
1: Peak friendship yep. era.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean in there. You'd, you'd walk through there and it was elbow to elbow. You know, you kinda had to go with the flow to get through the the commercial row area. Well, I've now got several friends there at Iceland at this car plant that are into the same thing, and friendship is just about an hour away from Seymour. So we start going down there. I was the first one, I guess, I don't know, 89 or 90, I'd have to look. Uh, I think I showed you a picture a while back of an old international scout that
2: I had. Yes,
1: yeah.
0: And uh, I loaded that thing up, and I loved work on guns. I had just acquired my first flint log, which uh, I'm real proud (laughs) to know that somebody like you is doing an article on flint log. I'm real proud to know you, because that's a great thing that you're doing. Um, that first flintlock lock was a real clunker. Uh, nobody wanted it. A gun dealer friend of mine had it. I think I got it for a ridiculous sum of, like, 140 bucks. And this was about the same time, about uh, 89 or 90, when I first go into friendship. I've got this flintlock, and I'm taking it all apart. Because I think I can get it working. I've been reading muzzle blast for several years now. You know, I'm, I've been to friendship. I can fix this. You're
1: stuff. the real deal. I, yeah. <laughs>
0: it, well, I wasn't quite the real deal yet, but I was learning. Yeah, yeah. And, and I knew where the real deal was. I went down there twice a year. You know, I I knew I could get it figured out. So I, I load up this old scout, and on the tailgate, um, I had a piece. Of uh, countertop, the, the laminated countertop that laid down on the tailgate. Yeah. That was just the right size, so it kind of nestled in there and didn't move. And then I had a little four-inch bias bolted on that, and uh, I could do some work. And I had a, a small uh, Kennedy tool chest that I put some files and some stuff in, just the basics. And you close it up and it's kind of like a battle chest. You know, it's metal, it's got handles on it and it's all sealed up. So I threw that in the back of the scout and tossed everything in there and some clothes and campfire wood and potatoes and onions and a skillet and some grease. And I was ready to go camping. You know, and I did, and I go down there and I get a camping spot that is directly across the creek from the main gate. Brenda got me a real good spot for a new guy. And... I was in hog heaven. I I, I got down there late because the vehicle broke down through, I didn't tell anybody this, the vehicle broke down three or four times <laughs> right down there. And It uh, it was dark when I got there, but that was okay. Because there were so many lights, at that time there by the front gate, there would be several state police cars. I mean, four or five. You probably remember this, and there'd be a big bonfire there. Yeah. The, by the front gate and I could set up my camp by the lights of the main gate over there that the, all the, the electric lights they had on and that big bonfire. And I just couldn't stop grinning. I thought this was <laughs> just a and it's Friday night, you know, a little after dark and I had a little uh, nylon pop-up tent, you know, and I threw that down, got a foam mat, my sleeping bag in there. And I literally could not sleep from the noise up in primitive and in the barn area and across the creek at the range, I was like a kid before Christmas. I didn't want to sleep. All those sounds, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can still hear the the gunfire from the trap range.
1: Right. You know? Yeah. They're still going and at I that time. I was just
0: in hog heaven. So finally I do get a little sleep, wake up the next morning and uh, build fire and made a pod coffee. And, uh, I get out my little work set up with my, uh, tailgate workbench I have which I highly recommend if you if you get the opportunity to set up a, a workbench on a tailgate do it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I get this set up and I, I have that flintlock lock totally disassembled I've got the barrel out of it and I think I've got the, the bore smoothed up now I've been working on the bore and now I'm working on the outside I'm going to file everything off of it crisp up the corners and and start over so i'm uh, draw filing that barrel and working around the beach the breach and people are walking past and kind of looking at me and at the time i didn't know there was such a thing as Gunmakers hall i think literally it was just a building right i know it didn't have a pavilion or a back porch well it may have had the back porch but there wasn't really any work going on there per se there was a display Um uh, and I had seen guys in the campground with set up similar to mine b- over the years before, you know, where, where like your grandpa, they were working on guns, you know, in their own way. They might have a vice or a table or a workbench or something. Well, I have my little workbench there on the tailgate. And uh, I mean, it, I was working, you know, yeah, with a file. I, if I'd been somewhere, I would have been paid an honest wage. But I would have paid an honest wage just to be there. Right. I was so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> watching people go by and hearing the PA, and uh, which sounds like a, a Charlie Brown cartoon. Right. Yeah. 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 The yeah. Yeah. voice, dancing on the ground. But I was just loving it. And uh, I'm draw fouling this barrel and kind of catty cornered from my campsite. There's a big Winnebago brand mobile home. Uh huh. And it's got an awning out and a carpet and two seats and a little table. And this older couple's having breakfast. And the old man stands up, wipes his chin, sets everything neat and tidy on the table, scoots his chair in and walks straight over to me. And he sticks his hand out as he's walking up and says, Hi, I'm Myron Carlson. I saw you've been filing there. I've been watching you and it makes me think you know what you're doing so i want to tell you a few things if you want to listen and my jaw hit the ground i was just speechless you know and he's shaking <laughs> my hand and he's got a grip like a oh my girl. gosh yeah you know, you know he's got he's a little short guy he's probably five six but uh he's just built like an eight you know and uh i i introduced myself you know i told him i was ben Query and, I showed him what I was working on, and he said, well, i got to go set up the booth. He said, come by Booth 98 later. When I get set up, and we'll talk. Well, it turned out he was Myron Carlson of Dixon, Illinois, and he was a collector and restorer and builder of Southern Mountain Rifles, which um, a Southern Mountain Rifle is a gun typically built in the Appalachian region of uh, western Virginia, uh, eastern Tennessee, southeastern Kentucky, North Carolina, along the the mountainous area of the eastern United States. Um, And he had collected a bunch of them. And off those, he made parts. And you could buy, say, a Baxter Bean complete part set off of him that he made in his shop that was made in the exact same way that Baxter Bean made it in 1815. Wow. Yeah. Uh, And I was fascinated by iron-mounted guns. I built a few brass-mounted guns, and I thought they were neat. Um, At the time, we had gotten where we had Dixie Gunwork catalogs, and they had uh, a Dixie rifle or something like that, but it was an iron-mounted rifle that I just lusted after because— um, my father was from that region in the United States, from that part of Appalachia, where these guns would been made. And I thought that was really cool, being a, a history buff and thinking about that. Um, so this just fell right in my wheelhouse when Myron said he built Southern Mountain rifles. I I was just I was blessed. It was a match Myron made in heaven. Came. Yeah, that, that Myron came over there and introduced himself based on me using the file. You know, that was the best resume I ever wrote, was that file, I guess. But uh, I went over to his booth, and he showed me all kinds of stuff. He had these little plastic Kmart toolboxes that he used for storage, and he had about 20 of them, and he would have a complete set of parts in that toolbox, like 10 sets of said Baxter Bean rifle. He had the thimbles, the motor wow. cap, the guard, the patch box, the butt plate. All that, you know, he'd, he'd have like ten muzzle caps in this little compartment in the toolbox, and he'd have the thimbles in this compartment, you know. And if somebody wanted whatever, he would pull that toolbox out from under the his booth. You know, he got the counter; he'd pull that out and uh, pick out the parts. And for a hundred bucks, you could get that. And he was telling me how they were made, how he made them. And he said, all these look like originals back there on the back, but the originals are home in the vault. He said, I just bring the ones I made. And you could not tell them apart from an original gun. And he said, I put my name on it and the date so it can't be sold as a counterfeit. And you could see where right across the the top flat he had stamped uh, M. Carlson in the year it was finished for that reason. And that's a good thing that he did that because those guns looked original. They were beautiful. They wow. had the patina, they had the wear on the wood. They had the, the old crinkly Brown, you know, yeah, that looked like for about 20 years of its life, somebody didn't take care of it. And then for the next 50 years, they did, you know, that, that kind of look. And, uh, they're all functioning pieces that were deadly accurate you know, because he'd made them, you know? And, uh, for some reason, we would sit there in his booth and we would talk, and this went on for a number of years, and he would explain to me everything about building those guns. And it got to where uh, one year, I even went to his house and stayed for a few days, <laughs> and uh, really learned a lot. I was uh, writing a book about the triggers, because the, the trigger mechanism in a, in a Southern Mountain Rifle is what really technologically makes it shine you know it's cool that they're iron mounted you know and they blend in with the trees and they're kind of early 19th century camouflage, you know but what's really cool is they used what they call hardware store locks which were locks that were brought to this country by the keg you know a small wooden keg packed with grease probably whale grease and locks and they would come to the United States and be sold at a merchant, say a hardware store dealer, like for a dollar, for a lock. And they were often mass produced and low quality and safe, but the sear engagement was so strong that you really had to yank the sear to get it to go off. So if you put that in a gun with a standard trigger, your trigger pull will be so high that you'll most likely pull off the target. You know, even if you do get used to it, you're gonna have one giant trigger finger, you know, and muscles to do that. So the clever thing about Southern Mountain rifles and the Smiths of that area, they designed a trigger system that would compensate for that high, required high sear force. And the the way it did that, it had a well. There's several different designs, but typically it's got a a large mainspring that drives uh, the back trigger up into the sear with enough force to knock the sear off the tumbler. Okay. And then it'll it'll have a forward trigger that sets that or subcocks it and a tiny little feather string spring on it. So you you cock the back hammer and you're basically preloading this thing with kinetic energy. And then when you touch the front trigger and it's adjustable to whatever pounded your ounce pull weight you want that releases just like the sear releases the tumbler that front trigger releases the back trigger and it flies up and hits the sear and the gun discharges so it gives you a means to use a really cruddy lock but still make an accurate gun for whatever shooter wants to pick it up right so uh myron told me a lot about triggers and how to make them. And I'm really thankful he did because I like to build accurate guns. I like, you know, I don't build wall hangers. I build shooters. And I think a big part of that is the trigger mechanism. And uh, he, I really can't thank him enough for what he did. And in the process, I wrote a little book, uh, Southern Mountain Rifle Sketchbook, Triggers and Guards. Yeah. And I, I went to his house and he let me take apart original guns he would bring them in he said, here, here's this one, you know, this, this is a McKee, blah, 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 it was built then, it was made at this place, and he said, here's the screwdrivers, take it apart and draw everything you want to draw. And at first I was shocked, I was like, Myron, that's an original gun, and he said, I know, I've got a whole vault full of them, just don't <laughs> it, you'll be okay. And, uh. And he did. He had a room that was probably eight feet wide and eighteen or twenty feet long. In his basement was no windows, and a dehumidifier, and a heavy steel door and multiple locks. And on three sides of that room, he had guns wow. he was stacked like a gun shop. I mean, you could barely get your hand between them. And almost all of them were Southern Mountain Rockets. Jeez, he had a lot of Hawkins, and he had original Hawkins. And he had some original Sharps rifles, but the rest was Southern Mountain Rifles. He was a, a really avid collector. He was a friend of Jerry Noble and Kurt Johnson in the, the Illinois gun collector scene, and he had a lot of original work to draw from. And not only the style, but uh, he was a professional welder. I think part of the reason he took me under his wing is he was a welder, and I was a welder too. I was a tool and die maker slash welder just like Dad. I did a lot of welding in the tool room for the factory I worked at and uh, we'd you know, swap welder stories and work stories and because of that he could look at a, a piece of a firearm, say a guard or a butt plate and he could figure out how it was made. You know it's one thing to make the shape and yeah. a casting or whatever it's something else to be able to see that and see what made it shaped like that. How did you get it into that form? And what did you do to it thermally or welding wise or brazing wise to hold it in that shape? And he knew how to look at the little clues in metalwork and, you know, and he wasn't afraid to take a gun apart. And, you know, guys would bring him guns to be fixed or restored old guns. So he wasn't afraid to disassemble one. I don't recommend it. If you do have a <laughs> gun, take right. it to a qualified person that Before you even touch it with a tool. But he was one of those qualified persons and he would disassemble something, figure out how it worked. And uh, I'm very fortunate that he did because I really learned a lot from it. And I've talked to people since then and they have looked at me quizzically when I've said something like, Myron showed me how to do that. Myron did it just like that. They would look at me quizzically and and say, how do you know that? Said, well, Myron told me. Well, Myron didn't tell anybody. Wow. He died with all that.
1: Jeez. Like,
0: yeah, he, I know more than once. He said, you'll have to figure that out on your own. But nine times out of ten, he would explain to me how he did something. And I think it was that bond that we were both welders.
1: Right, right. There's and, that connection there. share,
0: you know, war stories about welding. <laughs> and, and getting burned and breathing fumes and making amazing things and doing things with a torch and a welder that you know, most people only dream of but um, he told me stuff I mean one old collector I know he, he said Myron told me you'll have to figure that out on, on your own young man and I know that same day Myron told me how to fix that problem because me and Ron were talking about it. this gentleman in question you know, boy, we were talking about
2: it. Huh. and Myron
0: told me how to solve that mechanical problem So I'm very fortunate that he took me under his wing like that. And that's part of what drives me to do what I do now, to teach now and to share the information I have is that Myron didn't. He did with me, but with nobody else. So all this great information on how to rifle a barrel, how to do this or that to a lock, all the vast majority of that information died with him, I'm afraid, and was not shared with the community. So yeah. a a big part of what I try to do with my life is sharing that with the community. I don't want to die with this information. I want everybody else that wants to hear it to hear it. You know, or to have access to it, you know, after I'm gone. Here's this archive of how to do this trivial thing, but at least somebody'll have it. You know. <laughs> yeah, you don't want right. that stuff
1: to be lost.
0: Yeah, I think at one point we did lose a lot of it. Oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, Colonial Williamsburg has been working for 40 or 50 years to figure out how a lock plate was made. And we made millions of these. Yeah. You know, and hundreds, A lot. We made a lot of them on a really high rate of speed. And they're still to this day trying to figure out the die plates to use to forge a lock plate efficiently. And that's something that we knew how to do in 1820, but we lost it you now. You know how do you know that's not an applicable piece of technology that can be used on a project that'll help with some modern problem you yeah
1: that's a a mental exercise i find um I've always liked tinkering with things, whether it was cameras or computers and and to me, muzzle loading is kind of another another realm for that you know it's a yeah. a, a puzzle that yeah. you know it doesn't uh correlate one to one with like my day job or uh, you know, working on the house or around the farm here, but it's still something that I don't know. I feel like it, I feel like it helps.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think it's good to know things. Um, I know a lot of people that their, their parents didn't share this information or their parents didn't know, but I've tried to share a lot of information with my daughter just on the basics of what to do if you need to build something,
2: you yes. know, or
0: even the mindset you need to have, well, if this pipe is broken, we don't just run around like our hair's on fire. <laughs> and I have done occasion, but, but we have to fix the problem. Yeah. You know, here's, here's a wrench, here's a tape measure, here's a pencil, whatever tools you need to solve that problem. Here it is. Now let's dive into it, you know, and that's a big part of the muzzleloader scene. Is you know, if you want to build a gun, you good probability you've never done it before like i did all those years ago and you just have to you know take that leap of faith and dive in there and do it and i'm hoping that through my work i can give people access and the community access to some resources on how to take that leap of faith how to dive in there with with hope and you know a measure of confidence based on what they saw me do or or read what I wrote, that they can go in and build that muzzleloader or that horn or pouch, whatever, you know, and, and keep that tradition alive.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles for more information on these great bullets visit www.thorbullets.com we'd like to thank thor bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast So, are you still are you still printing your your sketchbook? I know um, Dad and I used it on a on a rifle that he built for a friend. Is that something that's still around, or is that hard to hard to come by?
0: Yeah, actually, it is. Uh, Ron Boren, a few years ago, uh, 2019, I guess, at the fall shoot, he asked if I would be interested in taking over his drawing company. A little background on Ron. Back in the the 80s and 90s, he drew full-size blueprints of all those guns that Myron had. Ah, Not all of them, but a bunch of them. Let's say 48 of them. Full-scale drawings. And uh, Ron's getting old and he's got Parkinson's and he can't draw anymore. He was an industrial arts teacher at Franklin High School between here and Indianapolis. And uh, he was retired, but he was afraid he couldn't couldn't draw anymore. You know, he's one of these old-school guys that had a drafting table in a, in one room at his house.
1: Yep. You know? Oh, yeah.
0: And would And would draw and work on stuff. And I said, we were sitting around the campfire there at Gunmaker's Hall, and he asked me that. And I said, Ron, I'd be honored. That, you know, you have enough faith in me to carry that on. He said, well, I've read your articles in Muzzle Blast. You know, I, I remember your book and all that. He said, Oh let's work out a deal. I want you to have it. I want you to have dibs on the company, it, which was a very small company. It's was mostly the copyrights to those drawings. Right. You
1: know. But again, and, that's you know, information that can be yeah, lost.
0: Yeah. The originals, you know, the hand, the inventory of printed blueprints or drawings. Um, so he came down a, a couple weeks later to my house after the fall shoot. And, uh, We talked about it, and he actually had a gun that he wanted finished. So I did that for him, and he, uh, with a little cash from the inventory, he gave me the company. So now I have the Southern original drawings and all the copyrights. And uh, next thing you know, an an order from uh, Log Cabin Shop comes along for drawings. Ron helped me out, and he got the drawings printed at an engineering firm in Indianapolis for a pretty reasonable rate, and we send out like a hundred blueprints of different rifles to log cabin shop, and they resell them, and uh, that was real cool, and then uh, during COVID, Ron stopped coming down, he was coming down a couple times a month, but we decided during COVID to each stay at home, Yeah, and along about uh, January, yeah, maybe, maybe March log cabin shop sends me another order. So I now don't have access to Ron's uh, drafting abilities and, and drawing reproduction facilities. So uh, I call around to get prices on having the prints made and they're just insanely expensive. So what I ended up doing was buying a full size industrial plotter <laughs> and having drawings digitized and yeah. printing my own drawing. Which, right. Um, The reason I did that was the post-COVID price. granted, at the time, I was getting $4 for these drawings wholesale. And to have a company locally print them was (laughs) $4.50. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Printing and paper, is it might seem old, but it is not cheap.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So um, I ended up cutting out the middleman and had the drawings digitized and bought an industrial plotter. Okay. That feeds from a 24-inch wide roll. (laughs) So you can basically make a drawing, you know, 24 inches by 8 feet if you want to, you know. But uh, along with that, um, I have a big uh, office printer that'll do two-sided prints and that does everything but binding that I print the books with. So under the heading of the Southern Originals, I have Ron's original collection of drawings, which I think is about 20 that we publish now. And I have the Southern Mountain Rifle Sketchbook that uh, I bought a binding machine like the printing company used and I started binding my own books for that. So I guess I'm I'm now a publishing company. <laughs> <laughs> That's which I'm awesome, kinda of proud of. Yeah, I mean yeah, I, I was, I love I was always an avid reader and I think the written word is mankind's greatest invention. Yes. The, yeah. the file would probably be the second. <laughs> the written word made us what we are today. Um, so to have a publishing company, is kind of cool for me. And we've got another book coming out. We've got a book on techniques. Uh, it's just a little 20 page booklet on like how to, uh, mostly how to use a file, you know, and take care of a file. They'll sell for like four or five bucks at friendship, you know, but I, I enjoy getting the information out there more than I enjoy getting a little money from the book, book Cost kind of pays for the paper. I right. just enjoy doing it.
1: <laughs> that's that's something that I I try to touch on and, and talk about because it it's it's something I think is really special about muzzleloading, and f- for a newcomer it it can be a little jarring I think because you're used yeah. to big box stores or you know the big names you know your traditions your CVA Thompson Center where they they designed that stuff and built it to sell it. And I think that's yeah. evidenced in CVA and Thompson center of getting out of the traditional side of things when it stopped being the popular thing. But the muzzle loading as a whole has kept going because of these small businesses and these small, you know, cottage cottage run businesses, basically where you, you have people like you. Yeah. You're not, you're not making a fortune on it, but you, you want to keep it going. And I think that's yeah. really, yeah. really special.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I don't have a website. I probably should, or or more of a social presence. I I follow several people on Instagram, but I don't really have an act, an outlet to get this out there other than you know the muzzle blast articles I write and my own little publishing company. I wish I had more a a better way to access more people, I guess, to share the information that I do have.
1: Well, we can we can talk about that some, Ben. For sure, if that's yeah. something that you, I mean, I'd be happy to to set you up a easy website or as easy as I could and and walk you through that. You know, if that's something that you want to do, we can. Yeah. I'd be happy yeah. to make that happen for you, at, just to help you out. No, no cost for me. <laughs> just yeah, let's let's get the ball cool. rolling.
0: I I was watching your video. I was trying to catch up on what you're doing with a podcast, and I was watching. Uh, kind of was intrigued by your pistol video and i started watching that and i was looking at the vice you were using your uh-huh. setup and everything and i thought how cool would that be if i could get a camera angle above my body and show people what i do now mine's different um uh, i have some disabilities i guess you'd say so i sit down to work yeah uh i wear out too fast if i stand up but if i can sit i can keep going for a while so i have an old uh office chair. And I highly recommend that. Don't give up building or what you love doing because you can't stand up at your workbench to do it. Change your dang workbench so it will fit your lifestyle. Absolutely. A friend of mine told me that, and that was some of the best advice I ever had because I had worked, you know, I, I left uh, Ice and psyche, I was telling you about, this community of guys that well went to Friendship and we did government work and you uh, should <laughs> work for yourself in a in a shop what are you working on? a secret government project what's I that's a trailer hitch for your truck you know, something like that but uh, I left that place to go back to school because I wanted to be an engineer so there was no engineering school near me so I went to Indiana University and I took all the math and physics that you would take as an engineer which is a dreadful load of mathematics <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's why i did not go that route I...
0: <laughs> yeah so n- needless to say i was ready to go back to work after a couple semesters of that and uh, worked a couple other jobs as a toolmaker and then ended up uh, starting my own business and uh, built a shop out north of bloomington near steinsville and while i was at that shop I had my own machine shop. I had a milling machine and a couple of lathes and grinders and welders and torches and all that stuff that a a small mom and pop machine shop would have, you know? Yeah. And I built a boring machine and I built a rifling machine and, uh, I built a duplicating machine to duplicate gun stocks and, uh, it was to the point where my wife was getting worried. <laughs> About
1: she's, uh, well, so it's it's not that she's just now starting to get worried. It's that she's no, worried no, to the point where no. she's telling you that she's worried.
0: <laughs> she honestly now she accepts it. So, <laughs> like, so half a decade ago, she realized he's never going to change. <laughs> Well, I've had a ton of hobbies. I yeah. was just look at, I was just looking at the list today. I actually made my list my wife a list about twenty years ago. And you know, it had muzzleloading, loading of course has always been there. It seems like since I was eleven, muzzleloading loading's been there. But, you know, there were model railroads and model airplanes and hockey and ice skating and mountain biking and electronics and robotics and just a ton of different things I have tried. And I'll I'll dive into a hobby, and I'll hit it hard, <laughs> maybe a year, you know, and maybe I'll stick with it longer, maybe less. And uh, over, over that time, I'll explore it fully and get bored with it, and it'll go on a shelf in the basement. <laughs> 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 But, uh, over the years, I always come back to my letters. That, uh, the sense of community that you get from it, the handwork you can do, the, the gratification of doing the work and seeing something that you made yourself that's actually a viable tool that, you know, our forefathers and foremothers used to survive on this continent is just, uh, it never ceases to amaze me and I never cease to get enjoyment from it of being exposed to that. Now, granted, I'm kind of an extremist. I've, like I said, I've been a muzzler, muzzler since I was 11 and still am. But, um, keep in mind there was a period there going back to 97 when i I've got my own shop and I'm building all this stuff and I'm rifling barrels. And, uh, I have a forge out behind the, the shop that was, uh, making anything on the forge. My niece and I had started forging a barrel. We had it welded about halfway, which if you've never taken a a scalp or a flat piece of steel and welded it into a tube, you're in for a treat. (laughs) (laughs) There are some guys that can do that, and I applaud them for doing it. (laughs) Dang, it's easier than buy tubing. (laughs) And I learned that about barrels. Barrels is the whole game. Oh yeah, I, I experimented with barrels, and and I go. I know guys now, several guys, but that's all they do. They don't build guns. They don't do nothing but make barrels, and that's really cool. I applaud that. But I want more out of it than that. You know, I want to do woodworking. I want to do forging. I want to do other things. You know. Yeah. So in '97, in this machine shop, that first part of that year, January or February. I wasn't making any money at all. I was having a lot of fun building muzzleloaders and I was cranking them out. Was, uh, for me, cranking them out three or four a year, which, uh, is really flying through a gun for me. But at the time I was, you know, wasn't even 30 years old or barely 30 and had a full machine shop at my disposal, you know, so it was easy to get a lot of work done. Yeah, But, uh, because I wasn't making any money, I started applying for jobs, and I was uh, offered a job as a CNC programmer in an aerospace company in Martinsville. Now, CNC means computer numeric control, which is commonplace now. But at the time, only about 15 or 20% of the industry was CNC.
1: Right, really and early on. was
0: in aerospace, yeah. Uh, and what that does... Instead of you manually cranking the handles, a computer is driving the machine around. So now you can make arcs, you can make holes, you can do three-dimensional stuff. And that was pretty much required in aerospace. And it was a difficult job. It was also, a, you know, aerospace in the 90s, you wore a white shirt, a tie, and dark slacks. (laughs) 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 If you were salary in aerospace, that's how we all dressed. The tie was different. The only way you can tell us apart. We had the pocket protector and all that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey i've lost a few shirts to a rogue pen so i respect the
0: pocket yeah, protector yeah. it's been pinned so um in that time period i decided i was going to be uh, i was going to learn everything about technology i took uh, what what you call an online class today i went through several of those in uh, industrial statistics and geometric tolerancing and welding and Everything I could to get up with the latest technology that was being used in aerospace at the time. Because i was not a highly educated man. I only had an associate's degree. And I was in a world of people with bachelor's degrees in engineering and master's degrees in aerospace. And uh, I was, you know, a, a tadpole in a big box. <laughs> but I, uh, I did a lot of things to enlighten myself or to educate myself on my own you know, to, to try to advance myself. And I did that through reading back to how great the written word is. Well, uh, with some of my innovations and things I'd done by, uh, October that year, they promoted me to engineer, which was a huge burn financially. And for me, career wise, and, uh, ended up being a professional engineer for 20 years after that. But, uh, In that drive, to be up-to-date and high-check, the muzzleloader slipped.
2: Uh, And I wasn't
0: doing anything with them, and I ended up selling the stuff. Uh, First sold the forge and the swage block, the the gun anvil and all that. My sister had moved to uh, South, or my niece. I mean, my niece, you know, I told you my brother's 18 years older than me. Well, his daughter is only six years younger than me. My youngest sister's 10 years older. So my niece and I were always closer like brother and sister than I was to my own sister. You know, age wise, we were real close. Well, she and I had been working at the forge and one of the things we were doing is welding this gun barrel up out of a flat piece of metal, out of a flat scalp. Well, she had moved away and it was laying there resting, and I ended up selling all that to a, a fellow buck skinner. You know, at that at that time you were a buck skinner or you were a bib skinner. <laughs> the buckskinners had the leather pants with the fringe and you uh-huh.
2: know,
0: probably could have been on a Davy Crockett set. Not real historically accurate. Pretty close. But a lot of fun. And yeah, and <laughs> great fun. And the bib skinners had on overalls. Well Myron was decidedly uh, a bib skinner.
1: Okay. He,
0: he didn't he had the bib overalls and he didn't like buckskinners at all. And he kind of looked down his nose at me when I staggered over there from friendship because Uh, or from primitive a few years after i met myron i met more friends up in primitive and i started camping up there way up on the hill in primitive so i was part of that crowd so i ended up selling the forge to one of my buckskinner friends and uh, i had a wall tent and an awning and a a real nice camp setup we camped next to frank and lally house along the tree line oh my years years ago uh this would have been back in the mid, late 90s. And I sold that to his son. He was coming up and getting his start. You know, he was standing in basically a folded piece of cloth, you know, a ground cloth <laughs> hanging from a rope. <laughs> so I sold him the tent and sold off all the gun-making stuff uh, for about 13 years there, 15 years maybe. All I did, and of course in there too, I had a daughter. Yeah. So that That's all I did for, gosh, a decade, was be a daughter daddy, <laughs> and, uh, which I highly recommend. Girls are sweeter.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I have the most wonderful daughter. She's now uh, starting her first year at IU. But uh, that was the happiest time of my life. You know, I thought there was happiness until Katie came along. And I found out having a child is what it's all about. But... Uh, for some reason, in 2012 or 13, some little bug made me want to go to friendship.
1: Something was calling me back. Have,
0: I was going to have surgery on my right foot, and uh, I wouldn't be able to walk for about eight weeks—six to eight weeks. I was going to walk, but you know, for the first three weeks, you're sitting with your foot propped up, and then walking around in a boot. You know, after that. For another till the six or eight weeks is over, and I thought, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down to Friendship. And I'm gonna walk around and see see the sights, and then uh, I did that, and I ran into a friend of mine who I'd sold some of that stuff to, and uh, we walked around Friendship. We went up to the flea market, walked around. We got some dirty food at the flea market, laughed, <laughs> cut up. Went up Primitive and walked around the range and just had time of our lives, you know. And it was like the old days. He was one of those guys that I worked with at Ison in the car factory that we had camped together with, you know, even up in Primitive had camped together and done all the, the Primitive shoots, you know, and all that. Well, now I just happened to run into him at Friendship in 2013. Yeah. And uh, at the June shoot. And we're standing there in Gunmakers Hall, and he said, I'm going to buy a ticket. You want a ticket? And I got a ticket. And uh, while I'm filling out the ticket, he says, um, you want that duplicator back that I bought off of you? And I was like, duplicator? What? I'm not even, not even building a gun anymore, you know? And he said, I'll let you have it for what you sold it to me huh. 13 years ago, you know? and uh, all right. Yeah, what the hell? I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'll have to clear out some space.
2: <laughs>
0: overflowing with junk. Because I'd moved to this house. The old house had the machine shop in a, a pole building that I built and insulated and drywall and made it real nice. And I had my machine shop and my gun shop in there. Well, we sold that property and moved to where we are now in 1999. And what I didn't sell of uh, the gun shop and machine shop got jammed in the garage. <laughs> it's, it's been like that for almost a decade.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, so on the way home from the shoot, we stop at Bob's house and he lives in Seymour. Like I say, we'd worked at the car plant in Seymour together and uh, we pull in his house and uh, Here's the duplicator, the top of it, the the machine part is on the floor uh, under a bench and the the base, the legs is holding up a miter saw. And he says, hey, you want that anvil too? Well, yeah, I'd love to have an anvil. And uh, there's some history on this anvil. This anvil in 1990, 91, I was always looking for uh, blacksmith tools in the flea markets at Friendship yeah, machinist tools. Yep. And there there used to be uh, a few guys around the flea market. One just sold machinist tools. He had a couple big, uh, well, he had a big motorhome and maybe a trailer, but he had a big display of hammers and files and center punches and all kinds of machinist things and tool markers. That was one end of the flea market. Way up on the hill and down in the town, there was a guy called the mayor of Friendship. They had on overalls and a big stovepipe hat and he had a, a car hauling trailer and a motorhome, and that trailer was covered with blacksmith tools, anvils, swage blocks, blowers, tongs, anything you can imagine to start up a shop or augment what you have. Well, I was looking for a, a smaller anvil. At the time I had a 250 pound anvil, and I wanted a smaller one to go along with it, to have inside the, the shop. And right on the fender of this, Taylor is this nice little 80-pound animal. and uh, it had a rust line diagonally across it. And I'll bet you anything, way out on the prairie, that fell out of a wagon
2: oh. or something
0: and laid in the mud
2: at oh. that angle
0: okay. for 100 years. Yeah, It's rusted that deep. You know, it it's really in there for many, many years it sat like that, and somebody fished it out. And sold it to the mayor of Friendship, and I got it off him for a whopping eighty bucks. Back then, an animal was a dollar a pound. It didn't matter what size it was; it was a dollar a pound. And I, I was uh, young and strong, and put that animal on my shoulder and carried it back to Campground.
2: <laughs>
0: and I got to—I I thought I can do this. Well, I get out on the highway. You know, this is in the flea market in town, and I walk out onto the. The highway, struggling with this thing, and um, <laughs> I I set it down on the guardrail there by the creek, and thinking, Lord, how am I going to, to thing <laughs> back And this guy pulls up in a Chevy truck. Of course, this is Saturday morning, so traffic's moving along, you know, less than one mile an hour. And this guy and his wife in a Chevy truck stop and say, "Hey, brother, you want a you want a lift?" <laughs> like, oh man! So I, I set the hill on the truck. And he and my my wife and I hop on, and he ran us all the way down to where we were camping.
1: Oh, that's nice.
0: But uh, so I had sold this animal, to Bob Bailey. So there's some real good history on this. Animal. Yeah. And uh, he asked if I wanted it back. Uh, I said, Well, yeah, we well, want for it three or four hundred bucks now because you know the price of animal. Oh my gosh, it went it. crazy. Said, no, I want eighty bucks for it. So <laughs> I sold it to me for. It. All right, let's put it in the truck. So we we go. We go to his neighbor's house, and I have to wonder what happened. his neighbor was not home, but he had an outbuilding with a wood shop in it, all kinds of nice woodworking tools. He and Bob, his neighbor, had gotten into making really high-end wooden furniture. They had all the tools, you know, the, the shapers, the routers, the big table saw, the bandsaw, all that stuff. Over in one corner was his anvil. And Bob and I grab it and go put it in the truck. And I still, to this day, wonder what the neighbors thought when he went out there and that animal was gone. <laughs> and the door and the door was still locked because Bob had a key, and locked it. But uh, I bring all this stuff home. Well, wait a minute. Let me back up a second. Before I bring all this stuff home, while I'm at Friendship, I saw a guy selling barrels. Pretty nice barrels. He had older Green Mountain barrels. And they were pretty cheap; they were under a hundred bucks. So I bought one of those, and uh, ended up going. I think it was Dunlap Woodcrafts was still there then.
2: Yeah.
0: And I bought it, bought a stock, and I had bought brought a bunch of my books with me. This, this is how this all started. I thought, I'll take those old books I found. I'll take them down, to friendship. I'll try to sell them and make a little money. Well, I take them down to Log Cabin Shop, and. Uh, um, I talked to the owner at Log Cabin Shop, Kindig
1: Yeah, Kendig's.
0: Um, yeah, was there and talked to him. And I said, You want to buy this box of books? And he said, How many you got? 23 in here. And we worked out a deal. Well, he gives me cash and he takes the box of my books. Well, now I've got cash burning the hole in my pocket. So I went and <laughs> bought that barrel and I bought a stock and I bought a lot. And then I stop at Bob's house and I get the anvil and the duplicator. And I get home, and I pull in the driveway, and I'm just grinning like a fool in my mind, in my face. I'm like, what am I going to tell my wife I've done? (laughs) So I unload this stuff, and I started doing research and uh, cleaning out a spot in the garage. And the duplicator uh, came with a lot of tooling. Yeah. And it had sat in a shed out in the backyard and rusted up. So I uh, repaired it, uh, got rid of the rest on it, and uh, got it usable again and put it back to work and uh, made that first gun, of course, from scratch. I found one that I'd put away when we moved, and I had originally sold off that stuff. I had made a wooden box like the Civil War armor would have used to stack rifles in and I had put parts in there and guns that I hadn't quite finished yet. Well, I took out the drill driver and I opened that box up and there's a, an almost finished rifle and one that's about two thirds of the way done. So I immediately pulled those out and went to work on those and I built my new one. And within just a year or so, I was in it neck deep. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, When I was at Friendship, I, I said, I'd like to get a membership, because as, as, as soon as I came around that curve and saw the campground and the range, I was like, where have I been all these years? <laughs> you know, I know I did some cool stuff, but I should have stayed in touch with these people. So I went to the NMLRA booth, and I said I wanted a, a membership. And she said, have you been in before? I was like, yeah, but I let it expire over a decade ago. She says, that's okay, tell me your name. And she looked it up and I was still on file. She gave me the same number 60294. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I still have that uh, membership number that I had from 1986. Wow. When I, first, when I first joined. And that's how long I've been in the NMLRA, minus a, a gap there in the middle. But uh, I started getting muzzle blast in the mail. And then uh, through that, I started seeing ads for Shumway Publishing. Which, uh, if you haven't been exposed to Shumway Publishing, you should. They sell a number of really good uh, titles for the muzzleloading community, and including how to how to build a rifle from scratch, uh, invaluable information. And uh, through through muzzle blast and the muzzling community, I really got really got back into it. And then uh, I finally. Re- Pretty much retired from engineering after twenty years, I'd had enough, and I left. And uh, I was getting ready to go down to Friendship in June of 2017, and uh, a friend of mine said, "Why don't you bring that rifle you're working on? Like you used to." And he was another one that camped down with me, and he'd seen me working on guns the whole time. I'd had camped at Friendship before; I'd bring some kind of ice and a bench and work on guns. Yeah. That I was building one year, I had a, a slide in camper, one of those big, enormous campers you drive under, and a three quarter ton Ford four wheel drive. And I had a two by 12 <laughs> passing to a couple of boards that I could jam in <laughs> between the camper and the top of the bed yeah. and use it as a workbench. So I, I'd always done that. He said, Why don't you bring that along? Work on it, you might meet some new people. So I did. Uh, I made a workbench out of a slab of maple. They mounted a device on it and threw that in the back of the truck. And I had a, a camper shell on the truck. And when they put the camper shell on it, I had them put a, a carpet deadliner, which makes it like a, a Suburban or an SUV. You know, mm-hmm. It makes the back of a pickup truck really nice. And it's got, actually, it has like foam under the carpet. Uh, so cool. I'll just sleep in that, you know. So I called Brenda and I get a campsite. Uh, and she said, Well, you can have a site. On the creek side, or on the range side of the creek, where before I had, you know, camped on the other side or up in Primitive. Well, this is great. So I go down there on uh, Friday, and I just have to wander over to Gunmaker's Hall and got talking to those guys. And I had a few pieces of wood that I bought at a local sawmill. Uh, One of them was sassafras, which is kind of unusual to find a piece of sassafras big enough to make a gun out of. And uh I asked Dick Miller if he wanted to buy it because he was into you know, always in different types of wood, and he did and uh so I sold him that, and I got talking to Dennis Pretty, and he said, "Why don't you bring your stuff down here? you can work in in here uh the pavilion uh, all right, so I went and got the truck and brought my tools out and set them up and uh that Saturday morning started working at gunmaker's Hall. <laughs> in the, and, you know, I was just like the new guy, and I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but I had this rifle, and I was really, uh, really humbled by these guys. You know, John Cleggie's over there with a machine he built, hand reaming and choking a, a muzzleloader barrel, yeah. you know, an old barrel, and putting it back into bio shootable condition, you know. And Bill Hoover is rifling one of the barrels that John just reamed. You know, he literally... Finish up the barrel, get a mirror finish on the inside of it. And here you go, Bill, and hand it right to him. And Bill would price it. And Bill Hoover is just the the one most wonderful little guy. He was tool and die and you'll know him when you see him. He's always got period dress on and like a a French trapper's hat, a knit tall hat, even when it's hot, it's <laughs> talking cap on. But he's just a wonderful guy. He's a great teacher. He'll. Uh, He'll just stop what he's doing and, and show you how something works because he just loves to share yeah. you know, and to explain to people how it works. And all the while, you know, he, he enlists your help pulling the, the drawbar on that rifling machine because each groove is cut by hand. And it, Bill told me once it takes about 800 pulls on that drawbar oh, really? to, rifle, to rifle a single barrel. Yeah, it takes um, seven grooves in the barrel so whatever that equates to but he'll um uh, you know pull so many times per groove and then index it and pull so many times on that next groove and index it and gradually work that out to where it's seven or eight thousand steep but it's 800 steps and i think about four hours well hmm. if he's got help you yeah know, and can kind of swap out because it's pretty physically taxing um And Dennis Pretty was there. He was engraving, and Larry Horgan was there. He was doing one of his French guns, and uh, Lauren Hellman was there. He was real. He was. It was Lauren Hellman that originally told me to come over to Gunmakers Hall and talk to these guys. And uh, I I really got to thank him, Lauren Hellman of Michigan. He was a, a bag maker and blacksmith, and we hit it off right from the start. And he's like, well, come over to Gunnackers Hall and meet these guys. Because there was a, a gang of them that came down together from Michigan. Uh, Dick Miller, Dennis Pretty, Larry Horgan, uh, Lauren Hellman, uh, Dennis Neely, and a, a few others. Basically all from the Grand Valley Cap and Ballers. Yeah. Cub. yeah. Uh, great bunch of guys. And they were very inviting and very helpful. And they didn't really know me from Adam. <laughs> I got a great quote from Dennis Pretty. He said... I saw this guy standing there watching me and he had a big long beard and baggy overalls on and these little little bitty glasses and i said i thought he was some kind of critter that came up and crawled out of the creek <laughs> <laughs> he, he told me that a couple years ago <laughs> but uh I uh set up a workbench there and I had brought a vice with me, so I I had vice to work out of. And these guys uh start coming over and watching my work. And I saw one old gentleman just stand there and watch me. And he kind of reminded me of Myron. And he had on a, a campaign hat. And he was a older older gentleman, looked like he worked for a living, come find out he farmed, he had cows. Uh and he would just watch me, and he wouldn't say anything. His, his name was John Braxton. We'll talk more about him later. But these guys come over to see what I'm doing, and I said, well, i got to keep these screws laid out like that because they're handmade. This screw is not exactly like that screw. And if you change them, it'll damage the wood as you screw them in and out. It's like cross-threading a screw or putting a different pitch screw in a hole. Yeah. And they're like, you made those screws? Yeah, I made them by hand. And what about this? And yeah, I made that. I actually made everything on the gun, but the barrel and uh, the lock, I used plate and hammer and frizz and everything else I made. And they kind of blinked and looked at each other and walked away mumbling to themselves, you know, like you thought I was lying or crazy. And over the weekend, I think I stayed till Tuesday morning. Uh, came to know these guys pretty well, and they came to realize that, Uh, I make everything and they thought that was pretty cool. Uh, And the reason I do is Myron, my old mentor, he made everything. Uh, He even told me tales of swapping a barrel with a, a hand grinder.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: Over a period of a, a full twelve-hour day, yeah. on a on a picnic table with one of those big seven and a half-inch grinders. Oh my goodness! Straight edge and swamping a forty-four-inch barrel that started out at one inch and swamping it down to seven eighths. And uh, he said he's never doing that again. <laughs> but uh, uh, and making screws, you know, he made his own screws. And one of the guys, Myron, introduced me to. Was uh, Jim Hash of Mathematics, Virginia? He made iron-mounted Southern-style guns, a little fancier grade. Myron made exact copies of the utilitarian um, McBees, Gillespies, Beans, um, all the classic Southern guns, which were made on the frontier, typically in that time period. Uh, usually before these areas became states, when they were just settlements like Bean Station. So they were uh, simplistic, utilitarian rifles made with the materials on hand. You know, wrought iron, uh, copper, wood, and that's about all they needed. They made everything else. Well, Myron emulated that. He made virtually everything. And he introduced me to Jim Hash, and um, Jim did the same thing, only with the next higher grade. Okay. the, The type of southern gun that a gentleman would own. Uh, not just a utilitarian hunting piece, but one you could hunt with and show your buddies after the hunt, right, uh, with silver inlays and engraving, uh, you know, more fancy file work and things like that. And uh, I was asking Jim one time, I said, how do you get the slots and the screws to line up on all your guns? And he said, well, he just cut slots in them where you want them. And I said, what? He said, you make your own screws, don't you? And I said, no.
2: He
0: said, you got to make your own screws. <laughs> he said, if you're going to be a master gunsmith, if you're not making your own screws, he said, you'll never make it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I set out learning how to do that. Uh, and about that same time, I was uh, working. This was early. Uh, I was still working at the car factory. That was that time period was a big change in my life because I really discovered um, historical camping, you know, period camping. And, yeah. and I was working with Myron and Jim Hash and these guys in my work group where we were all camping together and learning how to make a fire with flint and steel and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. But I was, uh, I had a little shop in mom's garage where I grew up. And I was out there working on a gun, and she comes running in the shop and says, Ben, there's a show on TV you have to watch. I just put a tape in the video recorder. We had the old VCS or VHS video recorder. So I run in there, and it's literally the gunsmith of Colonial Williamsburg with Wallace Gussler. Wow. Which, if you haven't seen this, I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was made in 1968. It's a a video of Wallace when he was the master gunsmith at Colonial Williamsburg. And it shows uh, the complete building of a rifle from welding the scalp up to forging the lock, drilling all the holes, everything, and even down to engraving it. And I watched this, and I was in rapture. I was like a student sitting at the feet of Buddha. I watched (laughs) it. Fortunately, Mom had recorded that, and I watched it over and over and over. And Wallace made his own screws, obviously. I mean, oh yeah. He made, he made everything on the gun, so you know, under the, the tutelage of Myron Carlson and uh, Jim Hash and Wallace Gustler, I started down the road of building every single part begun that, that was within reason you know in the 1790s a guy on the frontier is not going to buy a barrel if he doesn't have to he's going to buy it from so-and-so down the road that makes barrels and he's going to get a hardware store lock and then everything else every single component he's going to make for himself and that's uh how i went at it i guess from one angle and I, I was telling this to the guys at Gunmakers Hall back in 2017, and they kind of nodded and realized, well, that is pretty cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and since then, uh, several of them have started making their own parts where they were buying parts. So we're seeing, uh, because of what I was doing, we're seeing a little more handmade work and a little more craftsmanship. Where I know Dennis Pretty is one example. He said before I showed him how to do it he was always using uh cast metal trigger guards and i showed him and with that book that you and your dad used i showed him how to make a forged trigger guard and he said ever since then you know for several years he's been making his own forged trigger guards
1: that's awesome so what is it about the southern guns that that keeps bringing you back
0: honestly it's the technology As I mentioned, I was an engineer for 20 years uh, and to see this level of technology for the time, you know, we're talking about the late uh, 18th early 19th century and its place is on the frontier of the early United States where we've just in, in a time scale we've just crossed the continental divide onto the western side of the divide of Appalachia and explorers like Uh, Daniel Boone, and I can't remember his exact name, but first name, but he was a Bean, was one of Daniel Boone's first companions into what would become the state of Tennessee. And he set up a gun shop at at Bean Station, which was a a little small fortress where they would stock supplies and take refuge from uh, Indian attacks he started building guns there. He was a good friend of Daniel Boone's and he was a gun maker. And at the time, it was incredibly expensive for any goods to take that route from say the eastern seaboard where you might get a pound of coffee off a ship and take that overland across the divide through hostile territory to one of these places like Bean Station or any of the other many settlements in the late 18th century along that that region of the world. Well, it would become Appalachia. So anything you, you bring in is going to be incredibly expensive just by the, the haulage. Yeah. It's going to be difficult to get there. It's going The to be, freight. Yeah, the freight is going to be real expensive. So because of that, they made things. They made their own on the frontier. And I think you see this all up and down the frontier. That, you know, if you look at the, the geopolitical economic situation, a lot of things had to be handmade. Um, and Another cool thing. I have read that during that time, the British had an embargo against bringing brass to the new United States. And the reason being, uh, brass is used in the construction of naval cannons. At the time, the British were the largest naval power on Earth, and they didn't want any competition from what was one of their colonies. So you couldn't get brass in that part of the world. So, no brass trigger guards, no brass butt plates, no brass thimbles. What they did have was iron, which was at that time was virtually laying on the ground. Yeah, I've got assay reports from the 1770s where they're talking about nuggets of iron in creek beds, where it's just it's everywhere. So they had iron, and they used iron. hammered out. There were foundries. Uh, There were furnaces. There's uh, a number of furnaces in any area that were smelting this iron. And the reason being, they had large hardwood forests. This hardwood was converted, unfortunately, mostly by slave labor, into charcoal. This charcoal was used to fire the furnaces that took these nodules of iron, these found nuggets, and turned that into a cast iron ingot, or ingot that would be hammered into wrought iron. Yeah, I'm not sure we've got all the technologies right, but the what came out of the ground would be put through one of these simply made, basically a a blower and rocks to build the correct shape. That's fed, you know, charcoal, the iron nodules, and uh, limestone, and a huge fire is built until it's tapped, and this liquid comes out. Well, that liquid is iron, which they did have locally and that iron was hammered out and would become the butt plates and the trigger guards and the fact that they did that you know as much out of necessity as it was it was there and it was easy and it also made a much smaller stronger guard of wrought iron trigger guards much stronger than a brass trigger guard another thing another problem i had being on the frontier lead was at a premium you know a lot of these guns are a smaller caliber because of a 36 caliber ball you'll get far more per pound than you will say a 54 caliber ball um so you get a lot more shots and the game is smaller in that part of the world there there may be white tailed deer but there's a lot of other things like squirrel and turkeys and things like that that don't require a huge ball that uh, a smaller projectile is a good thing so, again, you have the economics of scale and the price of bringing a pound of lead from wherever it was mined in the United States. Yeah. to That frontier colony is going to be really high. So, lead's are a premium. Well, say in Pennsylvania, they're using lead to solder things together. The pipes, the muzzle okay. the, the, the cap, all that, they would use lead for solder just like you do with plumbing now, with copper pipe. Now it's lead-free, but it was originally just lead or... A lead tin alloy, and that was the soldering compound. Well, that's what was used on firearms in their construction in in the Pennsylvania regions and regions where lead was not at a premium as it was in Appalachia at that time. So, what lead they have was used for bullets. They still needed an alloy to combine these pieces of wrought iron, and they found that in copper, which was literally laying on the stream beds. I have some examples I got at a rock show. Um, last year in june that were actually found on a creek bed on the surface and the native americans have been using this for jewelry and other items for you know thousands of years they found they could hammer this into a copper sheet or a rod and that could be used to basically hard solder or solder these components together without the use of lead and that's that's a great Technological advancement from an engineer's point of view because now you've got an alloy that's similar to silver solder, it's much stronger yeah. than a lead solder joint, and you can make uh, really detailed work with it. Things like a trigger guard, uh, maybe typically four components, and these four components in a, a typical southern mountain rifle may be uh, like a mortise and tenon joint when they come together. Like the the very forward end of the trigger guard bow will have a tenon that goes into a square hole in the finial that is fastened to the wood. Well then it will be peened over, so it's mechanically a pretty good fit, and then they will use copper, would have used copper to sweat that joint together to make it even more rigid. Where you would have used uh, lead like on a copper pipe, the smiths of that region would use some of that found copper to do the same thing at, at a higher temperature, but all, it also makes a much stronger union between the two pieces of metal. Hmm. I know that's probably boring you to death with the mechanics. Of- no, no, no. I'm
1: just, i I love that. I'm fascinated by it, and that's the kind of stuff I love. I love talking about Ben because it's yeah, it's so interesting.
0: Yeah, for me, it's really cool that, you know, that, well, we can't build guns because we don't have bass and we can't build guns because we don't have lead. And somebody so, came along and said, like, yeah, you can't. Look, <laughs> yeah was, I figured it out. And again, you know? I think
1: that, that goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier about it being this kind of exercise, even for yeah. us today, to try to understand and, and think of these things in today's context, but also in, in their context, because it was yeah. such a different time.
0: Yeah, and that, that's one of the things I uh, kind of hinted at with uh, my daughter, that I want her to have that mindset, whether it's in an 18th century setting or today's setting, where there's a way to overcome this. We, yes. can, we can figure this out. You know, if, if this needs to be made, we'll figure out a way to make it. And I, I love that, you know, you asked me what, makes me come back to the southern mountain rifles and the guns that they made and that's it their ability to overcome and keep in mind they were doing this on the frontier there were several accounts of uh, people coming out of their workshops and defending their homes from arrows being shot (laughs) at so you know while this guy's hammering away making a trigger guard he may come under assault and have to set it aside and put his rifles he's finished out to defend his home and family. And they were also, by living on the frontier, they were subsistence farmers. And they were, you know, planting crops and harvesting crops and butchering game, all to stay alive. And in that, found the time to make some of what I think were some of the technologically advanced, although simple-looking, firearms of the period.
1: And really, you know, uh, culture-defining artworks along with that.
0: Yeah, some of them are, are slender and quite beautiful. They're not carved or ornate, but they have it's just... the geometry and the shape that's there. Yeah, You know, it's like people will look at a, a fighter plane from World War II, like a P-51 Mustang, and they'll say, that's got the look. That thing even looks fast, <laughs> you know. And uh, the same way with these, a lot of these old guns. You yeah. look at it and you think, wow, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's the look you know when you you see that and the fact that they were able to do that with such simple tools and they started there you know they started at Mm -hmm. Main Station weren't all built there they were built up until the beginning of the Civil War you know in the the 1850s a lot of these guns were being made under similar conditions where that gun shop had not really evolved at all since its conception in the 1790s when they first come over the Continental Divide and You know, in the 1840s and 50s, um, various makers were building real simple guns. They might have percussion ignition systems, but they'd still have, you know, a really technologically advanced trigger system, and it would be swept together with copper instead of brass, even though at the time, as highways and things evolved, the cost of freight and the availability of brass and lead became reasonable, they still used that copper alloy to sweat and braise these parts together, and I think part of the reason was it was stronger, and they liked it, hmm. and it it's one of those things, like you see a lot of southern guns will have a really long tang yeah. on the, the breech, and There's a certain measure of strength there because if if the wrist is really the thinnest part of the gun and if it's not laid out correctly with the flow of the grain, it can be a quite weak spot. So to put a long iron trigger guard on the bottom and a big strap of iron screwed down on the top is definitely going to make it stronger. It's like reinforced concrete. But if you hit it hard enough to crack it there, you're going to have a problem anyways. I think the big reason that Smiths drew those long tangs out was just to show that they could. Right. You know, look, I can't carve, but I can do amazing things in iron. <laughs> you know, and a lot of these guys, you know, later on, they weren't just gunsmiths. They were the wagon smith. You know, they were the wheelwright. Yeah. You know, they made the hammers and they made the plows and they made the axes and they made the chain and they made all that. So they were qu- pretty adept at working with iron. So they could take that broken down wagon that was scrapped out and pulled the bits of iron off that and make a trigger guard or a butt plate or a tang and uh, for, forge it out with their abilities that they had garnered from fixing various farm implements or making, you know, fireplace tongs or whatever. A lot of that applies right to building a Southern mountain rifle and the iron work that's involved in it. What tips would you have for
1: an aspiring craftsman? You know somebody that's—I don't. Regardless of age, they're interested in this, and they want to learn more. Uh, you know, with the experience that you've had, what would you tell them to to do or seek out?
0: I—I'm old school, so I'd go with books. Um, and there's some really good web resources too. But a little research can really spark your creativity. Uh, would you mind if I gave you a book list? No, please. Uh, My very first one would be Foxfire 5. Uh, The reason being, it's got a big section on muzzleloaders and Friendship and uh, Herschel House passed last week. There's a whole chapter on Herschel House building a rifle from scratch in Foxfire 5. And I highly recommend anyone interested in building a muzzleloader to get that. I think it starts on page 296. And read through what he does. He uses very simple tools and simple methodology to build one of the the prototypes of his Woodbury School of Firearms, which is a a Southern Mountain rifle in the way. It's an iron-mounted gun. But uh, that's a real good book to start with, is Foxfire 5. Another one, uh, for whatever craft you want to go in, whether it's gun-making or uh, traditional woodwork or leatherwork, you're gonna find something that'll help you in the Complete Modern Blacksmith by Alexander Waggers. Okay. Which is a a very good book on how to make tools. Whether it's how to make a wood chisel or how to make a pair of pliers or an awl or some odd little thing that you will need in your craft, it's probably in that book and how to make it. And then of course. As far as books go, uh, Recreating the American Long Rifle by Rochelle uh, and Shemway and Alexander is a real good book.
1: I'm happy that I've, 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 I've browsed most of these, so keep them coming. I'm excited. To, <laughs> these are all great recommendations.
0: The Gunsmith of Grenville County by Peter Alexander is a, a really good book work on how to build a gun. It would probably be my favorite mm. on how to, you know, if you're going to start with a piece of wood in a barrel, that would be my go-to uh, reference book. And then, uh, I'm also a, a knife maker. I just love to make knives. Uh, and if you're interested in starting that, I would recommend Wade Goddard's $50 knife shop.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Uh, Not only for knife making, but he shows shows how to set up a shop and a lot of good advice on simple machines, kind of like Alexander Wider's blacksmithing book, on how to get your shop set up so you can make whatever you want to make within a budget.
1: And do you think that that knife making shop, does that expand out into other things? You know, somebody gets started with a knife, they get...
0: Might have interest
1: in muzzle loading as well, and that's applicable.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and that is one of the things I did all along because I needed a patch knife. Uh, I started making just simple little knives, and that evolved into uh, where I make several knives a year now, typically uh, historical knives, which my main volume for that is The Knife in Homespun America by Madison Grant. Hmm. That's a real good book on knives, folding knives, and others. I make quite a few knives now. And it's fine if you work really hard on a, on a gun. It's nice to take a break and work on a knife. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard that from folks that a knife is a, a smaller project uh, yeah. than a full muzzle loader. So you can kind of take that little break, complete an idea rather, rather quickly in comparison, and yeah. then get back.
0: Another good resource is uh, the American Long Rifle Forum on the web Uh, they have a real good research section where they've got a lot of pictures and history on different firearms and that can be pretty handy when you're doing research on a a particular gun you want to build.
1: That's one of my favorite forums. That's a great one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a lot of fun. I guess that's about all I've got unless you got some more questions for them. I'm sorry I'm keeping you so long. We had a Jehovah's Witness come to the door a couple months ago and I went outside and talked to him, and I talked so much after a while that Jehovah's Witness looked at his watch and he said, you know what, I need to get going. Oh, no, no, <laughs> I don't I – don't, don't feel that I way thought, at all from me, please. <laughs> I, I thought that was something if you can out talk at Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> no, <laughs> pretty no. Pretty
1: the, the last question I have, Ben, is uh, you know where can people find your work? We've talked about your drawings in the, in the book and the print company, uh, but where can people, can people contact you, or is there another venue – uh, for them to reach out and find that stuff.
0: Uh, my, one of my most recent guns, uh, you did a, a YouTube video on. That's, That's right, yeah. That McIntosh rifle. Uh, that one's out on the web. Um, I've sold a few to private collectors, but I'm working on uh, kind of a portfolio I want to put up on the web. Maybe if I can get your help with that. Yeah. Uh, right now my real only social presence is uh instagram where i post a few things or you can get me through uh hall all one word at gmail.com and uh i'll be happy to answer any questions there if anybody wants to email me something that you know how do i get started once i bought a stick of wood you know i will be <laughs> happy to help you out um uh, I had a client come to me in February, Brent Steele, and uh, he's a, a board member, a real good guy, former Indiana State Senator, and he wanted me to build a shotgun for him for June, which was you know fourteen weeks away. <laughs> and, uh, I got it done without any trouble, and he took it um, the to friendship in June, and he got second place was in sporting clays with it. He told me. So you'll, you may see that gun out on the sporting place. Oh,
1: fantastic.
0: I've got another one. Uh, his brother came to me after that, and he said, I want a gun just like that with a different length of pull and a different drop.
2: <laughs>
0: he had shot it and really liked it. He said he um, shot 10 birds, or he bought a round of ten birds, and he shot nine out of ten with it. He said, "This is the most expensive round of birds I've ever shot." I'm gonna have one of them's guns. So, um, I've been messing around more with shotguns. You'll see those out on the the shotgun range this year. I've got a few more shotgun projects, but I'll try to get some stuff posted on the web and on Instagram and um, through the Gunmakers Hall at Gmail. And I've been asked to uh, write a how-to article for Muzzle Blast on a monthly basis. You know, we unfortunately lost Fred Stutzenberger last year, who uh, was a very prolific author and scholar, just all around great guy, but he wrote a ton of articles for Muzzle Blast, often two a month. You know, maybe one on history and a how-to article, and I was asked by the editor of Muzzle Blast, David Erick, to uh, step up and start writing articles where Fred was, you know, we have, we're going to have a big void in magazine here. So I'm going to be doing that. So you'll start seeing a lot more how-to articles coming up, uh, not this month, but the following month in muzzle Blast. I'll be writing, you know, the basics of how to sharpen a chisel, all the way up to how to hand-make screws. I'll be uh, putting together in articles if you want to become an NMLRA member. And uh, read it in Muzzle Blast or on the web. Shameless plug.
1: <laughs> no, no, I I love it. I love it. We've, yeah. So we've got your video as well, uh, talking about Gunmakers Hall and the history there and the the scholarships too. That I'll I'll put in the the description for this of this episode, so people can check that out as well, along with the McInturf rifle, because I really enjoyed doing both of those. I think they were they were great little resources. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: uh, I had a guy. Uh, he's from Alabama. I can't remember his name. He wears a straw hat at Friendship, but he's a very knowledgeable Southern mountain rifle collector. And then, uh, Brent Steele, this board member I am telling you about came up to me and he said, I want one of your rifles. Hmm. He said, what, how long does it take before you get started on? I said, Oh, about 18 months. And he said, really? And, and he said, how much? And I told him and he didn't flinch. And I thought, well, I didn't tell him enough, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I said, what do you want? And he said, well, brass mounted. And I said, wait a minute. I don't don't typically build brass mounted guns. I'm the iron mounted gun guy. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) Well, I want a Roman nose. Uh, uh, I've never seen a Southern Mount gun with a Roman nose, which is kind of a a sweeping parabolic shaped comb on the buttstock, which a lot of people hate. A lot of people don't like, if you shoot one, you'll probably like it. My first flintlock was a welding nose. It just has a nice feel on yeah. your cheek, I, I think. i like, all right, I'll see what I can do. So I did a lot of research through the ALR and through books, which, you know, once you get into it, you'll find more and more books. Uh, I found Israel McIntyre was a maker in the 1790s, built flintlocks in that part of Tennessee. I think I may have explained some to you in that video. Um, and his guns had a Roman nose. He went on to be the largest barrel manufacturer in the state of Tennessee in the 1820s. Um, so I went, I went with that uh, design and I got it sawed out and I was shaping the stock and I brought it down to Friendship. And I've got it in my vice there on the back porch where I work on stuff, and this gentleman from Alabama comes up there, and he says, "I see you're building a McInturf." <laughs> uh, I said, "How do you know that?" He said, "Well, I saw a Roman no Southern Mountain Rifle." I figured if you were working on it, it was a Southern Mountain Rifle. <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, it's a McInturf." And he said, "No, it's pronounced McInturf." Ah, like M-A-C. Okay, he said, that's how we, that's how we say it in the South. And he said, "I have met." the great-grandson of the man that built that rifle, I'll bet. And I said, really? He said, yeah, the, the Israel, Ma-. he said, that's an Israel McIntyre, isn't it? And I said, well, yes, it is. <laughs> but he had, he's very active in a, a southern group, an Alabama group of collectors. And he knew exactly what that was. And it was pretty funny the way he corrected me and said, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> That is funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I got that one built. And uh, that one I had a lot of fun with. I got to do some of that silver in light because it was, you know, I recreated the old masters for decades, you know, the beans and the soddies and all those old southern mounted guns. And people started to ask, when are you going to build a Ben Quarry gun? <laughs>
2: you
0: know, not just follow what somebody else has done. So that's the first one where I took Israel McIntosh's basic design and I put my elements into it, like the the shaping on the cheek piece and the fancy pierced toe plate and the silver inlay and the filed symbols, you know, all that stuff that would have made it like the rifles Jim Hash made for a a fancier, wealthier customer, you know, a, a prettier gun, which I really enjoy doing. That's awesome.
1: I'd like to thank Ben once again for coming onto the show and, and talking with me. It was a really great way to kick off this year for the I Love Musluting podcast. I've known Ben for several years now, uh, but it's been it's been great seeing his work. It's been great filming his work and talking with Ben about his ideas. Uh, I love how I love how cagey is about things about trying to figure things out. And like I said at the start of the episode, his willingness to share that with newcomers out there. So uh, I'll have a link to Ben's Instagram page as well as the couple videos that I have with him. Um, And I'm going to be talking with Ben here over the course of the next few months about uh, how he can start sharing some more of what he knows uh, with the internet and with uh, interested builders out there so that uh, more of you can learn from Ben and he can continue to share that knowledge just as his mentors shared with him. Lots of links and resources in the podcast description or the show notes for this episode as well as at ilovemuzzloading.com where you can find uh, more links to more information uh, and some photos of Ben's work uh, as well. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. We've got some more episodes in the queue here. I'm really excited about 2024 here for the podcast. Uh, As always, thank you. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. We'll catch you next time.